Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Canadian RegTech Association's podcast. On today's episode, we will be discussing a relatively new field of leadership in the artificial intelligence era, decision intelligence. I will let the panelists expand on the definition later, but essentially, decision intelligence is the discipline of applying artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques to turn information or actions into better outcomes. It is a vital science within the field of data science to help optimize business decisions and to design and lead AI projects responsibly. My name is Donna Bales and I'll be your host today. By way of background, I'm the co-founder of the Canadian RegTech Association and a practitioner focused on regulatory compliance, market structure, strategy, and business transformation. For those of you who don't know the Canadian RegTech Association, we are a not-for-profit focused on solving regulatory challenges through collaborative efforts between key RegTech stakeholders, the regulated entities, the technology vendors, and regulatory bodies. Joining me here today is Mark Buckless, Implementation Lead, Liquidity Technology at Scotiabank. Prior to Scotia and since 1996, Mark was a Senior Executive Consultant in Risk Management and Technology. He has led multiple regulatory implementations for capital and liquidity and AML and KYC technology assessments and roadmaps for multiple banks in Canada and the U.S. Also here with me is Christopher J. Napoli, SVP Global Sales at DWO. DWO is a CRTA member firm. Christopher has more than 15 years experience in financial services working across the globe. He is an expert in data-driven decision-making, having honed his skills by leading teams in sales, process improvement, and management consulting. Now at DWO, he leads the sales division, including business development, customer success, and growth strategies. So let's turn ourselves to the panel today. And Christopher, I'll start off with you. Um, can you just expand on the definition of decision intelligence? Uh, sure, not a problem, Donna. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, as complex as decision intelligence may sound, uh, it really is just leveraging the latest that has come out in machine learning and artificial intelligence to truly augment human problem solving. Meaning there's a lot of predictive models that have come out um, or being developed internally from people within data science organizations. And it's truly there to give a recommendation of like what the next best action may be. So to make it relative, if you think about what a robo-advisor does uh, for, in, for financial planning, where it advises and suggests what the next security should be in order to achieve, you know, a, a, a alpha generation or a cap M optimization. Uh, this is similar I've, what decision intelligence is. It's just directed at different use cases. So you can give a recommendation of where you may want to increase revenue of uh, the solution may be able to help you mitigate risk. Uh, and at the same token, uh, advise in a more proactive way as data comes in, what we can or what our options are for certain processes. So I hope that's a good explanation for you. Let me know if there's anything else I'd like to add to that, Mark. Um, thanks very much, Christopher. And, uh, uh, and, and thanks also, Donna, for the introduction. I might quickly hesitate to point out that, of course, any opinions I, I talk to today are my own. Um, but I mean, 
if, if we look at those kind of use cases, I think I agree with you. This is a state where we're looking at uh, the next step of automation. And a lot of automation to date has really focused on taking things where there is no decision, where there's simply, uh, there's simply a known rule that we follow. And I think really what we've taken a step here, the technology has now allowed us to do things that, that allow us to uh, allow the technology to make decisions or recommendations. And some of them are actually very simple. We see them all the time in finance or in, in optical character recognition where, where optical character recognition is used to, let's say, read an invoice. Uh, it's used um, online for chatbots where they will, the service, the service is oftentimes provided by something that is, that is robotic up to a certain point where it can make decisions and recommendations before passing on to something human. So I, I would agree there's a lot of use cases generally in the industry. And I think it's really, it's an evolution of, of a path we've been on for a while, I think. Yeah, so it sounds like you're kind of moving to more of the tactical and strategic um, phase of, um, of decisioning. Um, can we, if we look really at the, um, the Canadian marketplace, can, can, um, can you just uh, discuss where you see um, decision intelligence helping with, within the regulatory framework? Sure. Go, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was going to say there, there. I mean, there are a couple of easy ones that, that that jump out, and I and for me, a lot of the the cases that come up where decision intelligence can help is where we produce a large volume of data through the process that needs people's attention, and you come up with uh, um, the, the the use of decision intelligence and in credit scores, for example. Um, and, and I think we see a lot of uh, uh, we, we see a lot in in the area of anti money laundering, um, uh, where I know there have been applications generally, and I know those applications are starting to find their way into the Kitty marketplace. Um, Chris, yes, and that's a couple of that particularly for regulatory work. Right? AML and KYC is a is a great area to kind of focus because the initial challenges and what was used in that area was to try to make sure that there were flags, right? So when you knew that you may need to investigate a certain amount of a certain transaction and or a, a customer in the way of knowing of the KYC and the KYD frameworks. What has happened though is that uh, overwhelming a lot of flags have actually been popped up, whether they're false positives, whether they're false negatives, etc. But they do all require investigation. So where you can point decision intelligence into that process is perhaps even an ordinal ranking system of which which triggers and which accounts and which transactions really require the most amount of attention because they are highest of risk and or the behavioral patterns are outliers based upon the bucketing or the segmentation that may be happening behind the scenes. So on top of that, that's a rather strong use case. Um, we are also seeing areas within what you would call customer 360, also kind of understanding the touch points of organizations in to a certain uh, company. So if you take a look at an example at a bank, there's different touch points into the bank for an end user, various different parts and getting a true picture of how best to help the client, or be in this case, the individual with the bank account and or the, the, the relationship with the bank um, is another example that we've seen uh, this be levered throughout the industry. And I think, uh, and Chris, this is one of those things you mentioned rules in AML. Um, 
in a lot of time, a lot of cases, what we see is um, it really it's it's those rules themselves really needed management. And as you talk about, you know, decision science can help us to think through how those are prioritized and therefore think about the alerts as they come through. But we're really talking about a very large data challenge that the technology, the decision intelligence is allowing us to prioritize and help cut down the actual amount of human intervention so that it can actually repeat as it finds patterns, right? Or uh, um, as opposed to an individual trying to get from the top of a list to the bottom of a list of 10,000 items in one day, not making it through that list and therefore not having been able to make a decision on them. Um, really what the technology can do, partially using, uh, uh, using a rule uh, as specified and partly using priorities and past history, that technology can reduce um, the giant amounts of data transition transmission that we have and allow us to not miss critical things because they can only flat, they will then, we, we can cue them so they will flag to a user um, uh, only the ones that are kind of most important to them, if that makes sense. Yes, I agree. And in fact, you know, at the point that we're chatting about tactical and strategic use cases and part of what we do here at Duo, actually the way that we deploy our, plat our platform is we go in what we call as a SEAL-based approach. So what that means is sense, explore, act, and then learn. And that last piece, right, the sense part is when the triggers go on. The explore is when you're really looking to see what you can or, or what you're being recommended to do, ultimately then taking an action. But the platform in and of itself, and this is really when we're starting to move from tactical solutions into enterprise and, and larger scale strategic deployments of solutions around artificial intelligence, the feedback loop needs to exist so that the system can learn, right? And so in the event that you're either accepting or not accepting a recommendation from these levels of platforms and systems, are there ways to learn to improve the model prediction, right? And that's truly where it is. Or are there ways to learn where deviations, where the recommended action may have been a better action in order to improve in areas, right? To truly help human behavior, right? Reduce what we would call that cognitive friction and be able to focus on the higher priority items first and leave the lower priorities if it's possible uh, to more of a, I wouldn't say a process automation, but in more of a line of prioritization for where human capital needs to be focused and take a look at it. I think the, um, the last piece there that I would like to say is particularly the tactical and the operational and the enterprise use cases is that what truly happens in organizations is there's a silo, a lot of organizations departments are siloed, but an output of one organization or one decision is an input to another. So as you kind of break down these walls and think about how to truly develop an exponential uh, unlocking of potential talent and applications of AI, you know, having a framework or a understanding of how one action is an input to another and you could truly try to help humans get to decisions faster as you lever uh, a consistent tool about how to deploy these types of uh, and, solutions. Go ahead. And Chris, if we think, um, if we think sort of strategically about this, I mean, we very quickly get to a point where not only do we start doing the work differently, we can dramatically improve the productivity of the people because we, or the people in the system as a whole. But I think, especially as we think about this, even from, and I think we've almost started taking this from a uh, financial institution perspective, but I think it really works on both sides. On the other side of, of, you know, of all of the 
regulatory information that is submitted, all the regulatory applications that are submitted, and of course, all of the AML and KYC information that gets submitted to regulators, we've got overwhelmed regulators. And in the case of something like AML and KYC, we've got uh, uh, national police and, 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 and local police overwhelmed with signals they may be getting from the information. Anything they can do to help pare down even further the information and find links, also helps them, I think, right? Yes, it definitely does. And part of the way that regulatory agencies have gone about receiving information from the organizations of which are within their mandate, right, is they've kind of passed down the structurizing or turning, say, unstructured information into structured information through how they go about doing reporting. So at least in the states here, I'm sure as well in all of the provincial um, areas in Canada, they normally have to send reports right, to the regulators in either XBRL, XML, or some structured data format. And most of what they're then doing is levering, not you know, eventually looking to get to tools where you could actually apply it, but by analyzing these large quantities of data, where do we need to look at in order to either help the capital market system, mitigate a risk in the capital market system, and or find whatever it may be that they're looking to protect their industries and the, and the people that of which they are uh, governing in that, in that sense. So on the regulation, on the regulator side, that's part of what they're looking to do is they pass on the structures of how to actually report so that they could turn in and, and generate large ideas. There's now better tools in order to help them understand uh, which areas or which companies or which transactions, whatever it may be that they're looking for, need further investigation. So exactly what you had mentioned, Mark, you could always flip it on the other side and say, how does this help regulators, let alone how will this help the actual industry? And I know for myself, if we could point a solution like this and to say which one of my Zoom meetings I need to take, <laughs> as opposed to which ones can be done in an email, I think that'd be a fantastic application. I just don't think that we're there just yet. <laughs> <laughs> Probably that's, that's not, an but I mean. That's an interesting what you're saying right now, because you're talking a lot about scale, like, you know, with the AML application, there's, you know, there's, there's scale to those types of engagements, you know, because of the amount of data, as Mark was saying, how does, um, like, um, how do you, how, like, what have you seen in terms of management of that? Like, because it's, it's quite a, it, it's, you know, there's a technology component, there's a culture shift, um, there's like, as you guys have touched upon already, like there's that reporting angle to management and board and to the regulators, like, how, like, how does that, you know, how do you start implementing something like this when there's just so many different aspects and considerations? There are a lot of prerequisites and we're, we're entering into a bit of a revolution similar to the one that we entered into with offshoring a number of years ago, where we figured out we could take processes and take them and, and put them in different parts of the world for expense. We didn't figure out how to shrink the processes down. We, um, um, and, and I think this is really what this, this revolution is about, but it is also about, it changes the nature of the, the roles that remain for the humans involved. It changes, it takes away the roles of the individuals who have only been doing manual types of work um, that now the machines can start to do, or that the, the decision intelligence can start to do. It also does change a lot of the infrastructure. So uh, 
effectively you need, you, you can no longer have paper-based forms to make a very obvious example. You can no longer have paper-based forms um, when the information needs to be digitized because a machine's going to have to be able to read them, to interpret them, pass them through rules, and then provide decision examples. So there's a number of things that really start to, that, that become required, both in terms of the people and their roles and how you rewrite them and how you adjust them, and, and then the technology as well. Yeah, and to expand upon that, the assets are mostly one of the, the main benefits that comes from regulatory bodies is what they are able to transform inside the four walls of the organizations of which they monitor. So because of things like BCBS 230, you know, 239, because of the Basel Accords, et cetera, particularly for at least uh, capital markets for finance, if we think about it on the asset management side, there's other um, other reports that kind of force the structuring of data. But if you think about algorithmic trading, uh, that's part of it as well. It, what that has done is actually given a really robust data organization for a lot of the of financial services firms relative to other industries. And that tends to be the foundation where, and at this point, most organizations have a chief data and analytic organization somewhere within it, whether it's a federated or a centralized approach, uh, depends piece by piece on the target operating model tons of benefits to either one. Um, but because of that, like the CDO in the beginning was, okay, how do I get a hold of this? Knowing that reporting is really uh, reliant on data, right? And once that has happened, it's like, okay, well, what else can I do, right? And what we have seen really in at DWO and a lot of organizations is that a lot of these models, a lot of these reports, they end at dashboards, right? And then it's up to someone else to interpret that dashboard, but it's also someone to maintain the dashboard and update new fields and nothing's ever really static. So there needs to be a much more dynamic way to go about business intelligence and the outright way of drawing in insights that don't end in a report and don't end in a dashboard. And that's really where we see a lot of organizations striving to get to. Um, but it's either a build decision or a buy decision. And that's part of what really where it is. But that CDO 3.0 agenda, the monetization of data, which is really kind of the topic that you look for, understanding where and how to ease decisions and process improvements internally, let alone opening up market opportunities when they're sensed are entirely are right fit right within that agenda um, as Mark was bringing up. So it's a little bit more of the industry 4.0 topics like the RPA to automate tasks. And now it's more along the lines of technology organizations trying to help augment decisions just because there's way the, the volume of data and the volume to time of which you need to make decisions is only getting larger and larger. I think if I'm not mistaken, the stat is that, you know, every, what 90% of the world's data was created, what, within the last year or so, I forget what it may be. It just shows that as the digitalization agenda is occurring and that unfortunately has been accelerated due to the climate of which we're in now, these are, however, what you it empowers you to do. So uh, there is some silver lining uh, and hopefully it's there to reduce the amount of hours we're all working in order to maintain uh, those processes as we kind of adapt to this new normal. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one of those things that comes up and, and, and one of those capabilities that's really important is, is mathematics. And, and I'm saying this not because, I mean, in a lot of cases, the machines will be doing the mathematics for us. I think where we go, though, is, is I mean, the amount of data that we're creating and the tools we need to actually capture them is really a function of our technology. And 
our, 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 our increasing use of mathematics to, to analyze things and develop them. Um, it, it's, it's a really, really powerful tool, but, but I think at, what we're finding, I think, is that you know, users at all levels, with people across our societies, are not really comfortable. They're going to be much more comfortable with uh, seeing the report for themselves and verbalizing a discussion. Um, they're, they're leaving it alone to something arithmetic leads them to think that it's a black box, that, you know, that they, they can't possibly explain the results that came out of it or, or not without a great deal of difficulty. And I think there's comfort level there for, to a certain extent, individuals and organizations to, um, uh, to the people who manage them, to the executives who are responsible for the overall process, and obviously for uh, you know boards of governors and, and regulators who who need to be able to who need to be comfortable that they've done everything they can to understand it, and some of that will come by way of governance activities. But to be honest, I think some of it will have to become have to come from us becoming more and more comfortable with the fact that you know arithmetic isn't magic, uh, higher maths aren't magic, but they're you know they are complex and they're not something that everybody is as familiar or comfortable with. It, it, it seems like you do have to like take the data, the data and the quantitative aspect, but you have to transition it to um, to a business um, speak almost, um, and that is not always easy. Um, is easy to do. Um, I was wondering, like when I'm hearing this, like where are we in the maturity in Canada um, in, in this area, and you know, have have either of you um, within your firm or with your respective clients done some specific user cases um, to 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 test this out? Again, actually, it's funny, Donna, because I, it's almost, I mean, the value proposition that we have here at Devo is exactly the two things we were just chatting about. Uh, it's contextualizing data, right? I think that's one of the hardest challenges is that how do you make data not just be data, but put the business context on top of it. And then I think the second part of that equation is really how do you take advanced mathematics and advanced technology like graph databases and truly have business people feel comfortable with the adoption of what is coming out, right? And those are the two main value propositions of the Debo platform is to not have people worried about chi-squared tests or whether something's statistically significant up to a certain percentage, because that's the scary adoption part, right? That's the part that, that some individuals understand statistical probability inferencing, but in truth, how do you make it simpler, right? If you think about how Amazon goes about and just recommends the next product for you, right? It just knows the correlation between past behaviors of people buying item one with item two. So you don't know that it's behind the scenes saying there's a 97 degree confidence indicator that this is also, if someone's gonna make an additional purchase, this is what they are going to purchase. That's what gets recommended to you. So if you think of it from a recommendation standpoint, that's a way of kind of making it understand business context and moving forward. Um, but you know, it's exactly the, the solution that we have here at Devo that we're looking to take out to um, the Canadian marketplace, both in regulatory technology implications, as well as things such as supply chain management, which has been a rather large topic that we've been working with some organizations, both north of the border and down here in the States, about how to improve or highlight risks or be more proactive in the supply chain management of integrity and so on and so forth. And that's not 
industry specific. So outside of financial services where the assets are mostly digital, um, in other manufacturing, CPG, retail, it's more the physical location of logistics all the way, a trend analysis and marketing all the way to the replenishment of the actual item that you're positioning. And we've seen use cases and are working with a few organizations to help them in that regard. So, I, and I can add to that, that, I mean, my, my probably direct experience with, uh, uh, with decision intelligence comes from uh, my, my prior experience uh, as, as a consultant. Um, but uh, where I would say is I've worked with, uh, I mean, what I've seen is it, it has started to appear in a number of small ways uh, where, and, and, and what Chris said is correct. We need to be able to articulate it in a business, sorry, in, in a, uh, well, in, in, in a contextual way that works for individuals or so on, I think I, I would have to say we're at an early stage of adoption across the economy, but in many small ways, um, in many small ways. So it's, it's absolutely true. Everyone actually is quite used to interacting with, um, with, uh, um, uh, with, with decision intelligence and, and it's sending signals to them when they're, they're on Amazon and, and they just actually at this point to a large extent, they don't really know it or recognize it as such. Um, on the, uh, they're, they're certainly everybody's now heard all sorts of things about robo-advisors. Um, I've seen lots of applications and it was, it, it, it was my, my experience there came out of RPA where it, again, it was taking finance processes that are large volume. And it turns out that actually in order to make the decision inferences, the RPA couldn't do it, but you needed optical character recognition and, 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 and decision science around it um, so that you could actually teach the machine what was a good invoice and a not so good invoice or uh, um, you know, which information to pull off of an invoice. The sort of thing that you don't realize a person is doing, but it's really, it's predictive technology. Um, and that sort of technology has really taken hold across uh, finance organizations over the last few years. I know that I've seen still a fair amount of um, reticence to trust it uh, all that much in other reporting applications. I think there's a sense where if something isn't repeated as often and it's not quite, uh, you're not quite comfortable allowing a machine to try to make the inferences, there's definitely a, a caution in terms of taking it on. And I think that really brings us to regulation where um, I'm, I'm hearing of and seeing um, certainly, uh, I'm. I'm I've certainly heard of and encountered a fair amount of um, decision science in AML and KYC, um, specifically because, and, and I think this works because there's enough volume of activity that you can actually teach the machine where it can make inferences. Uh, I've seen vendor tools that do this, and I've seen, uh, I know, works going on at some of the the, the banks uh, around around Canada on. Uh, on, on applying this actively to to their their basically the large staffs that they have currently working on AML and the number of false positives that they're looking at. So I know there's a lot of work going there, but I think in most certainly in most regulatory applications, there's still a reticence, a reticence and a hesitation to get there. Yeah, and I, I would say the one way that, and I agree uh, wholeheartedly, so the way that Devo is trying to help solve that problem is by continually keeping a human in the loop, right? So it's really leveraging artificial intelligence to empower humans to make better decisions, but not replace them in their decisions, particularly for regulators because of the scrutiny of which models need to be under 
bias analysis, uh, you know, and so on and so forth, you can't just deploy certain models to certain tasks, particularly within heavily regulated uh, industries as financial services is. So by keeping that human in the loop is the way to get around kind of that black box approach and also to to generate confidence in the solution, right? I think some of the challenge with computer science slash artificial intelligence based approaches is that people are looking for it almost to be wrong to say, aha, see, look, I kind of, this doesn't happen, but it's weird because it's almost like you're mining for the negative when you don't, if you actually looked back and you're like, well, one time out of a hundred, right. Which would be a 99 degree confidence level. Yeah, it happens. Right. And I think that's the hard part about adoption and even getting out of the statistical speak is that even if you're 90% confident in something, which I think all of us would make that decision, it doesn't mean the 10% doesn't happen. Right. And there's a lot of harping on the 10% when it arrives and not enough reward for the 90% when it occurs. And that's really why you need to keep a human in the loop. But I think part of that too is really regulators want to ensure that we just don't have systems running markets, right. And kind of going through and so on and so forth. So there's been a lot of, um, thought in a lot of uh, areas and with particularly within model risk management and things of that nature, like, Hey, if you are going to do this, you need to be able to explain it to your regulators in the appropriate fashion and how and when, um, you know, and make sure that you have the documentation accordingly. So, you know, that's part of um, this adoption as well within the space. And, and I think this goes back, I, I mean, like part of the, you know, the, the stock market crashes of the 1980s actually originated with program trading which then led to the imposition of circuit breakers um, prior to further crashes in the, in the 1980s. And, and the program trading was an early set of highly automated trades that were put in in response to certain uh, market signals. And, and they very quickly got themselves out of control when the market went into a, a, a tailspin. And, and of course, since everybody was using roughly the same kind of market, uh, uh, um, automated strategies, Everyone, everyone got to see just what could happen if, uh, if, if the if the machines weren't tuned properly. And and I think that's where you see the human the human in the loop on this is going to continue. Um, I think, and and I think that describes why there's that kind of caution. Um, I, I I think as people get more comfortable, and I think certainly as we make, uh, I'm going to say we need to make model governance around this real. I mean, not because you want to uh, you want to take the, uh, the the math and the the statistical assessment of the 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 prob of, of the, the the parameters that you've put in and the, the the algorithm that you use, but effectively you want to be able to explain why it is you came up with the each of the decisions and each of the the, the data samples that you use for training purposes. You want to be able to understand why the answers came out, and you want explainability uh, to a high enough extent. And I think to do that, I, I think there's a certain amount of um, caution that has to be taken as we build out these models so that we can articulate it. Um, and, and it has to be more than just a documentation effort to satisfy, you know, uh, to you know, satisfy regulatory requirements. It's got to be a conscious effort to think about what these things are and then to run all of these models that way so that there is always still a human in the loop someplace, both operationally, but also in terms of designing how, I mean, how we run a bank or how we run the regulator that is interpreting the results for the industry and so on. 
Um, thank you. That, that's, um, I think we, we are running out of time. Um, and, but I think that's a very important place to start, you know, in terms of, or to stop, you know, in terms of talking about, you know, the governance and, um, and what kind of the next steps that need to take place in that area. Um, I, just to finish things off, um, can, can you both um, just very, very quickly um, give us a little prediction on where, um, where this might be uh, in like five years? Starting with Mark. Okay, sure. Um, I think in five years, we will have had a major breakthrough. I, I, I think in five years, uh, it, it will be ubiquitous in uh, anti-money laundering KYC, both because of the volumes of data and because of the regulatory pressure to find the, the so-called needle in the haystack. And I think that will mean that we'll make real progress in other areas and, and finding other areas to apply it uh, across, uh, across the industry. Yeah, and I would say that most of the, in five years, it'll probably harp on where a lot of the current AI and machine learning use cases actually exist and just kind of move it to the next step. So within say fraud detection, I would say within customer 360 is probably as mentioned before, another area. Um, we're working with a few organizations around credit risk and the ability to maintain and, and kind of leverage this type of technology in order to mitigate risk of risky assets and or risky accounts or clients. And then on the other side, um, to try to optimize account receivables for cash flow purposes, um, given where we are. So the use cases will probably continue to spin. And I believe the technology that we're talking about here will help it'd be easier for all of us to go about our jobs and our tasks, particularly, um, you know, as, as industry 4.0 continues moving forward and um, 5G is there to create even more data if we didn't have enough already. So, uh, you know, it's going to continually evolve and hopefully it'll help us in all of our day-to-day -day tasks as we move forward. Perfect. Well, thank you both for joining us today and providing your insights. And thank you to all the listeners on, on this podcast. And just keep watching our website for our upcoming podcasts. Our next one will be on quantum computing. Thank you. Thank you very much, Donna. Thank you. Everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. You too, Mark. Okay. Just give me a sec, guys.